Well, nothing has any value at all unless you have a baseline for comparison. And I think too many salespeople in companies go in and they talk about how great their product is, but yet they're not comparing it to anything, right? $100,000, is, is that a lot of money? You know, some of you would say yes, but the reality is you don't know until you compare it against what it is that you're purchasing. And so when it comes to our business, which is kitchens, you know, our unique selling proposition, or what we'll call our unique value proposition, one of them is speed, right? The kitchen is one of the most invasive home improvements you can ever take on. And we make a big deal of that in the home. This is the Wealthy Contractor Podcast, brought to you by G4 Marketing. Interviews with today's top home improvement entrepreneurs about marketing, sales, money, mindset, and lifestyle. Now, here's your host, Brian Kaskavalsian. Hey everybody, Brian here, and I've got another great episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast for you. This is actually a special episode. You know, we got a lot of great feedback on our last episode, which was an excerpt from our event, our annual event here in Florida called Accelerate Live. Now, if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and check it out when this one's over it's episode 164 and is called mastering the formula for success but in this episode i'm going to share with you our 100 million dollar round table now this session is a hit every year at accelerate in fact a lot of attendees say this session is worth the entire price of admission alone so you're going to want to listen closely because you're gonna hear some valuable insights from some big names in the home improvement industry. In fact, I was just thinking about this. This isn't the $100 million roundtable anymore. This one is actually like the $300 million roundtable. But you've got Brian Elias from Refloor. You've got Brian Gottlieb from Tundraland, Mark Curry from Revelair, and you've got Scott Berman from Florida Window Indoors. These guys are all the epitome of the wealthy contractor. Now, if you like what you hear, make sure you mark your calendars for February 7th and 8th of 2023 so you can join us live in Fort Myers, Florida for Accelerate Live 2023. This is an event you are not going to want to miss. Again, February 7th and 8th of 2023. For now, just mark your calendars, but you're not going to want to miss the next Accelerate Live. So, with all that said, let's get into the episode. These guys, so what's interesting, I was thinking as I was coming down here, so they all have very interesting backstories, okay? So you heard about Brian's, you know, folding table, $3,000 and in 2009. Mark didn't go into his background, but it's a doozy, okay? Scott, you heard about his background, bankrupt in 2008, started all over again. This guy sold stuff out of the trunk of his car. None of them come from family money. None of them had any, nobody did them favors. You know, they all started from scratch and became successful and became wealthy and became free because of this business. And so I think there's a lot to learn from them. And you guys are going to have an opportunity to ask them questions. I'm going to start. So here's a question that I kind of end most of the podcasts with. Knowing what you know today, what would you go back and say to yourself in the formative years when you were still a smaller growing company, what would you go back and say to yourself? What kind of advice would you give yourself? It's a broad question. I think the most important thing is plan your work, work your plan. And if you write that down and think about what I said every day, if you planned exactly what your business is going to look like five years down the road, and then you break it up year by year, you now have a plan. What I did was, unfortunately, I did it the wrong way. And instead of doing it 
in a five-year, you know, the speed that Scott did, okay, or, or Brian did, is it took me a long time to do it because I spent so much time operating more like um, flapping in the wind than a, than a plan. Once I started writing my plans down, it changed my life. And so you have to know what your business is going to look like five years down the road and even 20 years down the road to see how you're going to get there. And then you break that down into bite-sized chunks and then you build it. So that would be my advice. Does the plan have to be perfect? God, no. It, and it will change. Your plan's going to be wrong. And you're going to write your plan and all of a sudden you exceeded it so many times faster than you ever thought imaginable. So you will exceed your plan, but you need to get it down on paper and say, this is what I want my business to look like. So if you're thinking you want to do $5 million, that means you need five salespeople. That means you need 15 appointments for that person a week. That's 75 appointments a week, if my math is correct, which I'm confident it is. Okay? He's the numbers guy. He's the smartest guy up here when it comes to numbers. He knows his numbers backwards and forwards. But the first thing you want to do is start off, what do you need and what's it going to look like? And then when you build it like that and you build it to something that you can, you know, build towards, you know how much you got to spend to get those 75 appointments a week. So you think of it from that point of view, I think that's what, I think that's what it takes for everybody to be successful. Yeah, awesome. Scott? I would say... I agree with Brian, but I would also say that we're all going to make mistakes. Just make sure that the mistakes that you make aren't going to put you out of business. So be prepared to make the mistakes. There's nothing wrong with making the mistake, but make sure that you mitigate as much of that risk and as much of that cost as you can so that you can live another day. Because if you can live another day, you'll, out over, you'll overcome that mistake. That would be my advice to all of what you. Are, what are, sorry for the follow-ups, but what are two or three of those mistakes that are catastrophic mistakes? Catastrophic mistakes would be spending more money than you have, spending customer deposits in my mind that are not yours. I think that's a catastrophic mistake. Hiring the wrong person and replacing that person is not a catastrophic mistake. That's just a mistake that can be corrected. It's gonna cost you money, but that, that's not a catastrophic mistake. I would focus on the deposits. That, that scares me the most if I, I were a homeowner. I have a couple of those, too, that are mistakes. Long-term contracts, don't sign them. They don't want to do business with you on a short term. Do not sign long-term contracts. I don't care what they promise you. If they threaten not to do business with you, if you do not sign long-term contracts, okay? You're trapped then. Everything has an out. Well, we don't do it that way. Then we don't do business, okay? You're in charge. You're the... That's the golden rule, the one with the gold makes the rules, and you do not have somebody dictate to you. You know, you want to do business the way Google does. You sign up, you give them a budget, that's what it is, you know what you're spending, it's a beautiful thing. They want to lock you up, oh, it's got to be going for 90 days to see if it's going to work. If you don't get a lead from one of your lead sources quickly, you're, you're down the wrong road. So I would say that's, that's what, the other thing is, Somebody brought up hiring, who said that, hiring the wrong person. He's, he's right. Keeping the wrong person for a long time is insane. So half the people in this room need to go back and fire somebody. You're laughing. You know why you're laughing? Because you know I'm telling the truth. you know who the person is. And they know who it is. You know who it is. Get them the hell out of your organization. They're costing you money. I mean, I, I don't want to take money. Mark, what would you, what's that one piece of advice you would give yourself 10 years ago? Well... I have Brian on retainer as my spokesperson, so I'm going to defer all my answers to him. <laughs> and he was teaching me how to come out of my shell. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll just roll with the fact that I've somehow got this reputation as being the number, guys, the number guy in our industry. So here's a word of caution as I reflect back on my own experience. Yeah, run your num uh, business by the numbers. You've heard that consistently throughout today and yesterday. However, word of caution is don't get paralysis through analysis. At the end of the day, we are all entrepreneurs. We're in the business of taking risk, calculated risk, right? So don't throw caution to the wind and let your hair down too far, but don't get caught up in just looking at the numbers to the point that you get frozen. And that would be one of my regrets probably back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I think, boy, if I took 
more of a chance, more of a risk, I would have probably been a lot further ahead than I am today. So don't get called too flat-footed. He's fine. Don't worry about him. <laughs> All right. Look, how many of you want to run a 20% net profit in this room here? Yeah, okay. That's going to take a lot of parties in your organization to help you get there because you can't do it alone. I think, to, to me, we identify that the, our chief marketing officer has to do certain things excellent for us to hit that, that kind of a net profit. Our, our sales manager has to convert things a certain way to hit that net profit. Our production department has to do things a certain way to hit that net profit. I'm a big believer that we're, we, we have a rally point of a certain net profit. I'm a big believer to be transparent with my numbers in front of the people that help drive those results. I think by, if I would have done it earlier, when I started the business, I wanted to keep my P&L quiet because I thought, I don't want anybody to know how much we're making or not making. And, and I'm all by myself. I'm in a silo trying to achieve this goal. Uh, we didn't really start to explode as a very, very uber profitable business and still we, in, until we took on the philosophy of full transparency with our financials so that we can all see how each and every individual's accomplishments or failures impact the end result. It's a big change, but I highly recommend it. Wow. Cool. Your turn. Who's got a question? Add to Who's that first? EOS, by the way. If you're not doing EOS, you haven't read the book Traction, get the book, read the book. If you don't know how to implement it, which most of you won't, hire somebody to do it. It will change your life. I didn't do it in my last business. And looking at it now, okay, without EOS? I'm very familiar with it. Okay. It's just an organized system of running your business. It functions the same way. If you're not doing EOS, I saw somebody out there. I didn't talk to the people. He's, he's right in the there. back. They're he's awesome. Made, and he's right there. You look Don't at that man him. right there. I just made him a fortune. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about. We'll talk about EOS also. I do work on commission, by the way. <laughs> All right. Who's got a question? Who's got a question? Sam. Yeah, this question is for Brian. You mentioned you have full transparency with your numbers. Does that mean? that your team sees the P&Ls, like your leadership team, or how much do you let that down into the yeah, organization? Yeah, that's correct. So, okay, we start off the year knowing we want to hit, right? We, we start off the month knowing we want to hit. At the end of the month, the P&L is an autopsy, right? A P&L is nothing more than the patient lived or the patient died. You can't undo it. But what you want to do is you want to, my entire executive leadership team, we put every P&L next to every single division in every single one of our businesses next to each other, and we have a conversation across all lines of the P&L that they can impact so that they know where they hit it and where they missed and what the results are. They're also compensated around it too. But yeah, our whole executive leadership team has full transparency to the profit and loss statement. My question is directed to Scott, but obviously I take any insights. You mentioned just before spending deposits, and yesterday you spoke about having the cash reserves to confidently sell 90% financing. With winter coming, whenever that might be, if you're having difficulty between selling and production and not being able to keep up, how do you sort of try to change that tide to begin building up those cash reserves to be prepared for times when it's not as easy? Well, I mean, the first thing I think there's two part question to me. The, the first question is, there's a, a possibility that your gross margins are not correct. That's number one. The second thing is, is that for most of us, seasonality is always an issue in our business. But if you're keeping the right amount of money in your business, this, the seasonality, when, when the summer months you're installing more, I'm assuming you're up north, that's when you should be banking the money for the winter months relative to the slowdown. So to me, you're either, and I don't want to individualize, but potentially you're taking too much out of the business to substantiate your growth or, or allow you to properly cash flow, or your margins are wrong, which means you're taking a deposit and you're, you're negative when you go to install the job or close to break even when you go to the, install the job. And as a result of that, your cash flow is challenged. The other thing I would say to you, just to get on the right side of it, is as Brian said before, there's no long-term contracts, don't sign long-term contracts. I think the same thing goes for terms with your vendors. You can negotiate those terms out to help you build your cash flow until you're able to make this transition. There's no reason, you're giving them good business, 
let them hold it, hold your receivable for a little bit longer. You got to be creative, especially when you're first starting. And it's not your money, okay, until you finish the project. So it's not yours. You are, if you did hypothetically do what you're not, remember that is not your money. You should not be taking, if you're using the deposits, the worst thing you should ever do, even if you did do that, I'm not telling you to do that, but I am telling you not to take money if you're using those deposits. Because at that point, you're going to cause yourself a real problem. Yeah, I think so I, it's not your money until you finish the project. Yeah, I'd also like to add that I would look at the business design itself. The, the thing about this industry is just about every single role inside of your company should be on some sort of a variable compensation structure. Yeah. So that your costs go up and down as your business revenue goes up and down. And it shouldn't be front-end loaded based on when you sell it. To Brian's point, it's based on when you install it. I would look at compensation throughout your organization. Look, it could be every anybody from the accounting department all the way through the organization. There's simply no reason why they can't be on a variable comp structure that's going to even out your cash flow cycles. So I've heard you talk about this before. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Because I was fascinated by it when I heard you say it. Do, but do can you obvious. tell them a little bit more about what that means? How does that look? Sure. You know, it could be, can you put an accounting person on, on a variable comp structure? Well, sure you can, because what are they responsible for? They're responsible for chasing revenue, for, for making sure every job is done and paid. So why can't, you know, 50% of their compensation be based on a done and paid percentage of revenue? And, and so I think anybody in the organization, whether it's from the, again, from the accounting department to the person working in the showroom that might be setting an appointment to any outside field marketer. You know, a lot of these things, a lot of these comp structures are based on when it's sold. And I'll tell you, that's great if you have a lot of cash. If you're trying to, if you're trying to bonus a marketer on when it's sold, but there's simply no reason why if you, you can't create half when it's sold and half when it's installed. So they're, they're co-producers in your cash flow bind. You're not by yourself. And what you'll find is you, you have less of a turnover rate because what it kind of also is, it's sort of like golden handcuffs because they have to be around to get the second half of their pay. So what you end up with is you end up with an organization that doesn't have a tremendous amount of turnover. Did you start that way or at some point did you come up with that? So when I started the business, okay, again, I only had $3,000 and that is gone like after you get a telephone. It was in 08, it was in 09. Every single thing I did was variable. Every compensation structure, I didn't spend marketing dollars on anything. If it was, if, it, if I couldn't run that source as a pay for performance program, I wouldn't do it because I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford, as Brian Elias has said, I could afford to be wrong. I couldn't afford to be wrong for long. So, you know, so everything was a variable cost. The whole business was started that way. As I started to grow it, if I may, I set a separate checking account up. And what I did is as I was getting paid for jobs, I would take 7% of every check and I would stick it in a separate account, and that was my marketing fund. So I always had money to market, and then that account started to go. So I just, I wanna stay on that for a minute because yeah. I think it's fascinating, especially, you know, this idea of getting big and bloated, that's what kills people in this industry. All of a sudden a slowdown comes or some outside market force comes in, and now all of a sudden you're stuck with all this overhead. So, you know, most of these people don't have that variable structure in place. So just as an example, your production manager. If I was to go out and hire a production manager, it might cost me 70 or 80,000, just making up a number. 70, 80, 100,000 right. dollars, whatever. Right. How do you do it at Tundra sure. Land? $40,000, same thing with our VP of sales, by the way. $40,000 base salary, everything else is variable based on install targets and volume. It's all variable. So our, our worst month, we can predict where we're gonna be. If, if, if we sold nothing and installed nothing, we know what we can eat. So, and look, not everybody wants to work in our business. That's okay. We're, we're building a Super Bowl team. And the thing is, not everybody makes a Super Bowl team. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But people that are, that are, that are eager, that believe in themselves, that are, that are fascinated and, and really want to grow a business, they don't have a cap. They can make a ton more money than, than normal than putting a production manager at 70 grand a year you know, as a base salary. Variable costs, when you can explain it right and, get, and show them how they can actually make more money, it's a win-win. I also, I think, you, you know, one of the things Brian said, which we also do, is we push the compensation into the following year. So you know how the year was, and that ultimately, he's right, it's a golden handcuffs. Because in our case, our managers are bonused in March or April, 
after we've had time to close the year, figure out where we are, get all of the cancellations or whatever out so it's all clean. And we're like, here's our numbers, here's your bonus. Well, now they're already into March, so they're not leaving because they're already into another quarter. Like, it makes it almost impossible for them to leave. And always got money on the table. They always have money on the table. And I can tell you, not to get into specifics, but I was, my vice president of sales makes a, a $60,000 salary, and at the end of the year, he has a seven-figure income. So it, it works, and he's always tied into me and so agrees with what I You want to take a line of what everyone said? Compensation. Compensation Dic dictates behavior. Compensation dictates behavior. <laughs> it does. That's it. Absolutely. So if you want to control the behaviors, control the compensation. You have the carrots. Okay, you have a carrot and you have a stick. The carrot works better for longer. It, well, it's one of the stick few. Work, stick helps once in a while, but the carrot, use the carrot. Go yeah, ahead. It's, it, compensation is a very, very specific lever of control inside of your organization. And if you just put out base salaries, you're giving up that lever of control. Interesting. I thought that was fascinating. Over here, please. Tim. He's a football coach, too. Can so if I drop it, I'm really in trouble, huh? <laughs> Just a follow-up to that. So I love the idea, what you guys were talking about. But how do you switch from someone that's used to their salary? Yep. How do you make that change? I understand going forward hiring, but how do you change it? You show them how much money they're losing by not being on this compensation structure. Builder Prime is changing the game for home improvement contractors. Imagine having everything you need to help your business grow in one place. CRM. Estimating marketing automation with SMS, production management software, and now call center dialer integration, all wrapped into one easy to use package. And it's never been easier to switch CRMs. Hundreds of contractors trust Builder Prime to grow their businesses with powerful reporting tools to see which leads are making money, which sales reps are the top performers, and where to optimize for the greatest impact. We're talking about winning more jobs, boosting productivity, and delighting your customers. Are you ready to fuel your business growth even faster without all the daily frustrations of your current tech stack? You owe it to yourself, your team, and your business to learn why everyone is switching over to Builder Prime, the only true does-it-all CRM for home improvement contractors. Head over to builderprime.com and request a personalized demo with an expert today. Yep. Are their they? If you explain to them what their upside is, it should coincide with your, your upside, right? You're making more money, they're making more money. It's not really a hard explanation. It's just an adjustment of thinking. Yeah, you have to plan the conversation out of what you're going to say, so you have to make a nice little package. Here's what you were making before. I'm changing that. It's really not negotiable, okay? But I'm going to show you where you're going to benefit. So when you make a decision for your business, don't forget, you have to be the boss. So this is, you know, I, I hear it a lot. Well, you know, I don't know how my people are going to feel. Okay, well, you can't live like that. You have to look at it and say, and I want you to have a good culture, so don't get me wrong. I don't want you to think, oh, Brian doesn't get it. I, I get it. But you're the one who's got to make the decisions that are in the best interest of your business. I'm sitting here listening up here. Brian, I've known for years. Okay? And at the end of the day, he gave me an idea that I didn't think about. I'm already figuring out how I'm going to execute on his idea okay, into my business. Because it's important that you're making changes that get the people behind you. He's paying a guy a seven-figure salary. Okay? That guy will work his ass off for him. There's no question about it. A million dollars, is a, is, it's real money. Yeah, and I wanted to give you my application. <laughs> yeah, just one more layer. I'll tell you what. You talk too much. Changing you know, a variable comp structure for a sales manager, that's an easy one to change at any point. What we've done with the more difficult conversations where you have a, maybe it's an accountant or a bookkeeper that's like, oh my gosh, that's really changed. What we'll do is we'll say, okay, pretend we put you on this program today. What we're going to do is we're going to put it we're going to put you on this program 90 days from now. But we're going to start counting today, and in 90 days, we're going to go back and show you how much more money you would have made if you were on this program. And then we'll make the change. So certain roles, we do a transition like that. That's, yeah. that's called buy-in, right? Get their buy-in. But get a buy-in. Cool. Who's next? John. Hey, Tim. 
Tim's writing. Where Kurt, are we throw that. Where are we going? Over there. To, oh no, she's got it. That's all right. I'm Never mind. Go ahead. It's okay, John. Go ahead. Now go. I don't expect you to fully answer this, but I think the question is: Is this side of the room on the stage knows that formula, and this side of the of the stage does not know that formula? Can you do something on the formula? One more time. I'm sorry. The for they want to know the formula. So how do you come up with the formula? So what of the we're variable? saying is, you guys, it's like there's a veil, and you guys are behind the veil, and you ha already have in your mind, here's here's how we do that, yeah. and everybody out here is going, how the hell do you do that? Right? And you're giving some pieces, but it's almost like there's, the we're missing a little bit of the foundation, I think. Okay. Wait, Very Mark, simple. wait, do you have an answer no, for that? Go. Compete with this. Well, if you're talking about a sales manager, for instance, again, you go back right to your budget, to your P&L. How much are you willing to allocate percentage-wise on your revenue? Okay, so whatever that amount might be, you know, a percent, point and a half, all right? So then from there, you know, on a, say, a weekly basis, knowing how much business you want to net enter uh, sell, you would determine a, it could be a $40,000 base salary, all right? But from there, any, uh, like an override, determine what that override's going to be. And that override, it's not going to end up like two and a half, three percent, because that override's based on, you know, it's a, it's a variable, not a variable, but on a direct expense. The more you sell, the more they're going to make. The other thing I would say, going back to Tim's question, is making that transition, just to echo a little bit of what you know, Brian and the others spoke on, is you show them an example, put that plan together. Maybe three months, you're showing the person how much more they could make on this plan. If they still choose not to embrace it and make that transition, then I would submit to you that you have the wrong person. All right, so what you want, the old saying is the only people that think like owners are business owners, but when you put all your key staff on a variable type compensation, a performance-based compensation, you're giving them that sense of ownership. And then that's when the whole orchestra, you know, synchronizes. So how do you do that when you use the contribution margin formula? How, how do you back into the override? Oh boy. Well, you don't have to use contribution margin for that. All right, I mean, you, you could, you want. That's going to be a new hire, right? So I'm going to hire a sales manager. I would do that using contribution margin. But in this model, how do I, how do I get the override? Are you, it's a cost. Yeah, so say you want to pay somebody $50,000, all right? And you want them to make, as a salary, you want them to make 150000 You got $100,000, all right? If you're doing a, a million dollars a month, What's 100,000 as a fraction of a million? All right, you pay them 10% over, not from ground zero, but maybe on the overage, or if you pay them from ground zero, they'd have to first get over your break even, your threshold. All right, so nobody gets any variable bonus. Here's how I present pay plans to anybody working for me, and everybody, over 50% of my payroll is variable. Measure techs, salespeople, installers, even our lead generators are 100% commission based, canvassing in 70 Home Depots. And the way I set up any pay plan is it's got to be a win win. At no point do I want anybody on my team to win at my expense, but by the same token, no way will I have the company win at their expense. And when you go into it, that spirit, you know, it, it's going to resonate with everybody. But they have to perform to earn. Right. Most well, certainly. <laughs> so you, you I, just, think what, I, think oh, what, I think what you should look at, to make it simple, is if your volume is $100,000 and you're working at 50% margin, that's $50,000 of your expense that goes to your overhead. Depending on who the position is, you, you say, okay, my break-even point is $100,000. I'm comfortable with that. I'm making my fair share of the money. And whatever I get over that, whatever that number is, I'm willing to give him a piece. He doesn't know what that piece is or she doesn't know what that piece is. It's a percentage over and above whatever your overhead is and a certain amount of profit. And then you're willing to share proportionally depending on the significance of that particular person. In my case, I'm willing to share more money with my sales manager than I am a controller 
because in my case, I feel like I can't replace my sales manager, but I can replace my controller. I'm not saying that, by the way, against anybody who's an accountant or anybody I know or anybody else, but that's, it's value to your organization and it's, and it's predicated on the profitability of your company. It doesn't have to be complicated. And believe me, I'll tell you one other thing, it won't work the first time you do it. You'll think you paid the guy too much, but you really didn't because he brought more value to your company. Good? Okay. Who else? Come on, no questions, a bad question. Okay, we can go to, go to Tim. Go to Tim. Go to Tim, go to Tim. John, go to Tim. Tim, over there. Over there. All right, I actually had a few questions, but I'll just start with this one unless nobody else has a question. But this is kind of for, for each of you guys, and, and clearly you guys are obviously at different places than, than, than we are, which is why we're here listening to you. But what is your expected and or average closing rate for, for your businesses, and why is it there? And, and I say expected and average, because obviously those are those can be two different things, what you expect and what you actually get. And then the why behind that. Why do you think it's so high or why do you think, I mean, I'm clearly you guys are probably higher than most. You figured it out, but what's the main drive? This goes back to what I was speaking on yesterday when I was up here. So go back to your P&L. What, you, what do you want your marketing cost to be, right? I've already spoke about how some companies have a 18% marketing cost. I've seen them to be more bottom line profitable than a 4% marketing cost. It's not to say one's right and the other's wrong, but it's only one part of the picture. So if you want to say to have a 10% marketing cost, and you know how much it costs you to make a lead, you're using lead aggregators, you know, digital advertising, and say fully loaded, your cost per issue lead is $300. Now, if that's the input, what kind of return on investment do you want to get? That's what NSLI is, it's an ROI. We call it an NSLI, but it's really a return on your investment. So you got $300 and you want it to be 10% marketing costs on your P&L. So what's the output got to be? The output has to be $3,000. You need to have every lead you issue, you need to be bringing in that sales rep $3,000 of net revenue. Now, what makes up that $3,000? Well, we talked yesterday about a company that was, I think I had 25% as a closing percentage, was a better company than a 40% because it had twice as high of an average sale, right? If you're a gutter protection company, these companies might be closing 50, 60%, but they have an average sale of 3,000. If you have an average sale of 20 or 25,000, I'll take a 20% net closing all day long, because 20% of 25,000 is a $5,000 NSLI. Would you accept that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, okay, the numbers are way more important than the extra, as far as the net and all of that, I get it's more important than gross and, and quality over, over quantity, I, I, I get it. I guess it's more of a sales question, I guess, probably then, is what causes your customers to, to go with you, I guess, what would... That, that's a unique you, selling proposition, so well, I mean, if Brian's somebody, got the answer. To if that. somebody comes to you and says, why should I, and then... Here's what I can tell you, okay, I think if you look at a standard rule in this industry, you have a couple of levers of control in your business. If your closing average is too high in your organization, your prices are probably too low. I'm gonna tell you right now, if you're closing at 50, 60%, take a price increase, okay? Your prices are too low. So, you know, use price can affect closing average, but also if you have a long backlog, take a price increase. Price controls backlog too. So if you've got, if you've got a crazy big backlog, you need to be raising prices, and you need to raise them and raise them and raise them until you start to influence that closing average in that backlog. It's up to you what your closing average should be based on your business model. Like what he was talking about, about what the compensation structure should be. You know, mapping out your business, this is how much profit we want to make, this is how much revenue we're going to have, this is what our, our marketing efficiencies need to, to look like. You'll know, it's none of my business to tell you what your closing average should be. You need to tell me what it should be. But you'll only know that when you truly look at your business. 
But, but I think if, you, if the question were on the basis of what would you be satisfied with or what would be the average, I think all of us would say somewhere between 20 to 35 percent. I mean, that, that's really the number, somewhere in that, in that range. How do you, it's, and it, if it's above that, I agree with Brian, raise your price. Is also part of that question, how do you charge, how do you build in the value so that they'll pay a premium? Is um, that, was that it, the no, question I, too? I, I think just, just, just for us kind of where we're at, I mean, we're, we're right around 31%, 30, 30.8%, so right around there. But I feel like when I, I don't know if it's just an insecurity thing, whatever it is, but I feel like when I come here, I feel like everybody up on stage has like a 50, 60% closing rate. You guys are just no, they don't. slaying. No way. No, they I, don't. I had a, I, honestly, I had a 40, when I was in the window business, I had a 48% on demo. Okay? On demo. So that means I got in, I sold at 48%. Mike. Okay? With that being said, that's how my business was designed. Okay, he's but selling cancellations though. If you did it on leads issued, it would be a different number. It would Correct. Be a lower number. It'd be a lower number on leads issued. Right. There's no question. But I did. I always did it on demo. You know, my mission is to sell half of what we sit with. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I'm in flooring now. I'm shooting for 60% of what we sit with, because we create a unique selling proposition. So you have to build a selling program in order to hit the higher numbers. But you know, based on just leads that you got, it's going to be a lower amount. But don't you also start with profitability, right? Where's my profit target? So if I want to be at a 20% net profit, finish yeah, well, it. Well, <laughs> I wasn't going to finish the dot, dot, dot that comes yeah. next in terms of math. I was going to go back to putting the math aside. Yeah. Is that there's an old saying about water will seek its own level, meaning don't model your business after what everybody else is saying, yeah. whether they're 31 or 48%, all right? Again, the right way is whatever way you can make work in your business. But you should get your head around everybody in that probably the common denominator amongst all of us up here is sales-driven companies, is we expect people to close 100%. Or hate, I mean- Or more. Or, not that it happens, <laughs> but it's the sales methodology, right? And it's, it's a mindset, it's a belief. You know, that uh, the salespeople come back with all the objections from the homeowner, because we all know that the homeowners go to some type of objection school. They learn all the, the but objections. But the good news is those objections are all the same. Yes. Yeah, they all fall into one of four categories. We call them the four Ps, price, poverty, preference, which is shopping, or I uh, can't remember the other one, postponement. All right, so. Procrastination. Or procrastination, yeah. if you'd like more syllables to the word. But yeah, it's bigger. The, uh, <laughs> bigger <is> better. <laughs> but you develop your sales or closing methodology, and then your, your culture with your sales managers just holding those salespeople accountable to overcome every objection, put super glue on their tail end, dig in like an Alabama tick, and you just stay there and you close that deal. You know, and I'll share with you one more thing. You can drive yourself crazy in this industry that is often so focused on top-line revenue and closing average, at the end of the day, celebrate your net profit. That's, that's the number you really, really want to chase in this business, and everything else can kind of almost take you off track. Amen. Question back there. We got the one over there to on the right. Okay, back over there. How do you know when you need to change your scripting, both for in-house demo as well as elsewhere in the organization? When your closing percentage is down and it no longer works, or it's no longer relevant to the environment that you're in. Can you be more specific in your question? Well, meaning, so if something's not working and you know I need to change my scripting, what do you guys use as a method to figure out how to change it and where to change well, it? Well, first of all, where do you see your script not working? Where's an area that you say, okay, we gotta work on this. What area would that be in? Me specifically? Yeah, you specifically. Oh. It's your question. <laughs> <laughs> it would be overcoming, overcoming objections. In the house or on the phone? In the house. Okay. So that being said, do you have a written process that everybody has memorized? It's not followed very well. Okay. So price aside, do you need anything more than the, what do you sell, by the way? I do kitchen and bath. Beautiful. Do you need anything more in a cabinet than what I've shown you? He's asking. Him. I understand. We, we can go through the whole, I'm just talking about specifically. The no, I know. But do you have a written script that you can, if you, if I'm asking you questions because it's part of my written script that I have. So I have it memorized, and I make sure 100% of my people have my script memorized. 
And if they can role play it with me, I know they can role play it in the house. If they can't role play it with me, there's no way in hell they can do it in the house. So if you write the script, similar to what I was you know, taking you down a road, price aside, okay, do you need anything more in a cabinet? Do you want to settle for less? So what you're really telling me, you'd love to see if you can find a cabinet and save a few bucks on it, but you want our quality, correct? Correct. Then, you know, you have some sort of negotiated contract, okay, and you close the deal. But if you don't write that process and force your people to memorize your process that is your proven process that works, that's usually the mistake. Is most of the time people have some version of a process, it's not written down, Bob trained it to Michael, and then Michael does his version of it, but you need to have the original standard. Is that? Yep, million percent. I guarantee you that if you asked all of us or came into our organizations, every position is scripted. And when you say that, well, they don't handle it very well, I would look at that, no offense to you, as a management issue. Because in our organizations, and I think I speak for all four of us, it's mandated. There's no choice. It's not an option. I often say it's not a democracy. It's not a democracy. It's my money, my lead, my time. You're going to follow it or you're out. That's really what it comes down to. It's harsh, but it'll help you grow, and it'll certainly hold everybody accountable. But most of the time, people don't have what right. they want to happen written down. Yeah, I agree with that. It's usually they're not following the script that already exists. That's usually the, the problem. But in our organization, every single person in the organization is scripted, including our installers. Because in my opinion, it's the only way that we can deliver excellence with consistency is if everybody is scripted. So it's just kind of how it is. And one final comment on that is, in terms of your specific question, is knowing when to write a script or maybe even how to write it. On the marketing and sales side, probably the best advice I could pass along to all of you is the one sentence of one minute buys the next minute in our business, right? When you, you get an inbound lead, don't try to have your lead setters overqualify it, you know, or sell it over the phone. Just let the process unfold naturally, the way you're handling that lead on the phone, right up until the salesman, your culture, training that salesperson, everything scripted out, all the resistance at the door. For the 30 years I've been doing this, we train every salesperson to expect three things when you knock on the door. I can't afford it, I don't need it, and I don't want it. And if you can train your sales force to do that with a script, then one minute will buy the next. You're just trying to put your foot through the front door, get to the kitchen table. Three hours later, we've all seen it happen. It's a metamorphosis that takes place, and you're walking out of that house with a $20,000 contract with the husband telling the wife to give the guy some apple pie. Right. And what, just one observation for all of you. So Brian Gottlieb said we script our installers. One of the smartest guys in the industry says, great idea, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Because I, I have a checklist for right. my installers. And I thought the checklist was enough, but I'm sitting here listening and I'm going, checklist isn't enough. I should control exactly what they say so I can control the end experience. Okay, so that would be an opportunity for me to get a review that I didn't get because I scripted them. Even though I says get a, get a five-star review wherever possible, or it says it right on my checklist, okay? I didn't tell him how, and if he was such a great salesman, he'd probably not be installing for me, he'd be selling for me. It's a lot easier. Don't tell my installers that. <laughs> cool, okay, we had a question over there. Toss that. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so we've heard a couple times at this conference, you have to differentiate yourself, you have to differentiate your company. Amongst you guys and your successful peers, what are some common differentiators that you see amongst the most successful companies out there facing the customer I actually let's start with Brian and work yeah. down because, okay for me well, no, you all have it for me our point of differentiation products come and go okay today we're selling this window maybe tomorrow we're selling a different window today we're selling this bath I'm always selling your bath jacuzzi I know you're out there somewhere <laughs> however operational excellence as a defensible point of differentiation to fend off competition is the most difficult thing to compete with. Operational excellence coupled with a very, very strong culture. I think if you create that customer journey that's different than anybody else, you know, we, at point of sale, we schedule every single install 
the moment the customer buys a product. That's a, a lot of work to get there, a lot of work. We were talking about that at lunch. But it's a point of differentiation that's, that means something to the customer because it has to mean something to the customer because, you know, we have a lifetime warranty. We have a lifetime warranty. Everybody's got a lifetime warranty. Those things that used to be a point of differentiation actually sound like yellow page answers. I think what you want to do when you think about your point of differentiation, think about the customer journey and, and how can you make it a unique experience that's really meaningful to them as long as it helps also drive up that customer's willingness to pay. It should be authentic, it should be real, and it should be meaningful to your customer. Well, nothing has any value at all unless you have a baseline for comparison. And I think too many salespeople in companies go in and they talk about how great their product is, but yet they're not comparing it to anything, right? $100,000, is, is that a lot of money? You know, some of you would say yes, but the reality is you don't know until you compare it against what it is that you're purchasing. And so when it comes to our business, which is kitchens, you know, our unique selling proposition, or what we'll call our unique value proposition, one of them is speed, right? The kitchen is one of the most invasive home improvements you can ever take on. And we make a big deal of that in the home. We spend a lot of time talking about what's typically found in the industry. Several different contractors, permits, we call them GOK factors, which stands for God only knows, you know, what's behind the soffit, the plumbing, the vents. So after we do a customer needs assessment and an opportunity assessment, the people, the homeowner, is almost scared to death when taking this project on. That sets up for our value proposition, which is tied to speed. And we get in and out anywhere from one day, if it's just a door and drawer replacement job, or if it's a full replacement, still less than a week. And that is our value, because you could send a letter from here to grandmom's house over in Sacramento and put a stamp on it. I, what's the stamp cost today? 50 cents? 53 cents? Okay. But if you want it to get there tomorrow and ensure that it gets there tomorrow quickly, you'd be using UPS, maybe, right? Or Federal Express and pay $35. So that time, that quickness is of, of immense value, and that's what we talk about and justifies the price. I think the value proposition we have is we are just simply better through communicating and the consistent message among all departments. From the time you see one of our advertisements to the call center person, to the confirmer, to the project manager who schedules your measure, your installation, we absolutely drive home customer satisfaction and training. And I think what was eye-opening to me going through this process was a lot of my employees didn't recognize what good customer service was because they don't come from the environment of staying in a nice hotel like this or eating at a nice restaurant. So what their expectation of good customer service is and what mine is totally different. So you have to explain to them what your customers expect and educate them because candidly most of them don't really have that experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's very important that they understand that because in our case, somebody spending $25,000 for windows, they expect a lot. And if we don't explain what that expectation is, they have no ability to meet that expectation ever. So I would suggest all of us try to do that. Thank you, Brian. Cool. So we can take one more over there. Well, there's two. So can we get? Yep. Catch box. So uh, I want to go back to the deposits. What if you have customer deposits and you have vendors that you actually have to pay a deposit to? It's okay to use the customer deposits to pay the 100%. vendor's deposits? Yes. For sure. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just want to make sure that was okay. okay. It's, all, it's all good until you run out of money. So you want to make sure you're not running out of money. Yeah. Okay. And you want to make sure you're not drawing money until you're done using the customer's deposit. But your, but your defense is a lot better if you've given a deposit to the manufacturer as opposed to keeping that deposit. Right. I mean if, that, you want, if you want on vacation, watch out. Yep. Toss it right back there behind you. This question is for uh, Brian. When you were up there, you were saying that you went from a marketing company that happened to be in home improvements over to a, a training organization. Can you walk us through the why you decided to change that and how you did that? Yeah, because ultimately, you know, being a sales and marketing company that happens to be in home improvements, 
is great, and it's a great tagline, it's a great way to think about it. But again, our transition was to really, to really scale this thing and to really scale it with consistency, we have to shift our mindset to becoming a training organization. And whether it's a labor shortage or we didn't want to be victims of circumstance, great. You can't find installers out there. Maybe we need to rethink how we onboard installers. Maybe we, maybe instead of looking for the experienced installers, that's a shallow pool. We need to, we need to be excellent at training. We know how to train sales reps. Why can't we train installers? You know, why, why can't we just take that everything we know about what we do with our sales team and just run it through the entire organization? We think of ourselves as a sales training company. Let's think of ourselves as a training and development company. Let's teach managers how to lead. Let's teach installers how to install. Let's teach, let's teach sales reps how to grow and, and teach them leadership skills. Let's teach our employees how to balance a checkbook. Let's become a true training organization because if we can do that, then we're no longer victims of circumstance. We become agents of influence. Wow, beautifully said. Does any have a certification program they use for their own people? If you don't, write one, and then it becomes your unique selling proposition that you could use. Every one of our installers is certified. They went through our entire program. Okay, each person will do it exactly the same way when we come out to your house. And now you have something that nobody else is saying, and you actually did it on the back end, and you kept your word. So if you want to make your organization into something that's unique and differentiated, you want to talk about, we have, you know, a two-day training, mandatory training process that's a two-day training program that is mandatory for each one of our people to make sure you're satisfied. And the last thing they're going to do is have you walk through this entire project with a magnifying glass. Because we love you, but we never want to see you again. Now, do we say that to a customer? Yes or no? Damn right we do. <laughs> but you have to have it. But you have to have it. You have to follow through. So our installer, so we'll say to, as we're closing the job, before Michael leaves, I'd like you to walk through the job with him with a magnifying glass because it'd be very hard for us to get him on back on the schedule to get out here. And while he's there, we want to catch any areas of concern you might have, which really means we never want to see you again unless you want to buy another roof, which I don't think is happening in that house if you did your job right. Cool. So, all, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being here and taking your time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. Let me ask you, did it help you look at your business in a different way? Did it spark an idea or ideas that you hadn't thought of before? Do you have a list of action items that you can take and implement into your business or your life today? I really hope so. If it did, I'd like to ask you a favor. Would you leave a five-star review of the podcast? By doing so, you'll help other contractors find the podcast more easily so that we can help them achieve more success, wealth, and freedom. And before you go, make sure you subscribe to the Wealthy Contractor Podcast so you get access to the latest episodes as soon as they're available. We're always striving to provide you with great content so you don't want to miss what's coming up. In fact, if you haven't already, make sure you go to thewealthycontractor.com and get your free copy of my latest book, The Seven Secrets to Becoming a Wealthy Contractor. Just pay shipping and handling and I'll take care of the cost of the book. So until next time, this is Brian Cascavalsian.